This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Agios. Doctors Amar Zaidi and Mike Callahan are employees of Agios Pharmaceuticals. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z, and I am giving Dr. C a break on this intro right here because he did the hard work during this episode. Dr. C got to sit down with Dr. Russell Ware, who is one of our features in the Legends of Sickle Cell series, to talk a little bit about Dr. Ware's approach to sickle cell disease, his accomplishments, his approach to mentorship. It's a lovely conversation and one that I'm sort of sad I couldn't partake in. But with that, we'll move forward to the interview. I hope you guys enjoy it, and I'll see you on the opposite side of that interview. All right, Cheat Codes listeners, welcome back. We've had a little pause in episodes, but I'm really excited to be back and especially excited about our new series. We've done a little bit of this. We've had Dr. Vichinsky and Dr. Smith and Dr. Gladwin, really legends in our field, but we're going to focus in on that this season with some legends in the field, and we have a great one today. Dr. Russell Ware is with us. Dr. Ware received his MD and PhD degrees from Duke University and did his pediatric hemonc training at Duke as well, and then was the director of the sickle cell clinic there before moving to St. Jude's, where he was the director of the sickle cell program at St. Jude's for several years. And for about the last 10 years now, has been the director of hematology at the University of Cincinnati and Cincinnati Children's Hospital, the Marjorie Johnson Chair of Translational Hematology, and also the director of the Global Health Center and doing a lot of great work that we'll get into today. Dr. Ware has published well over 300 papers. He has many NIH grants and really truly fits this series as a a legend in the field of hematology with a lot of contributions, which I hope we can get into today. So welcome, 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 Dr. Ware. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for those very kind words. I'm just going to jump right into it. We want to hear a lot about Dr. Ware today and how you got into sickle cell and about your career. So let's start at the beginning. When did you know you were going to be a doctor? When did you know that was going to be a sickle cell doctor? Oh, gosh, those are hard questions to pin down exactly. I grew up in Central Florida and went to school, to college in South Carolina, and I was so thrilled to get a chance to go to medical school at Duke. So that was my dream to to move up and join the Duke Medical School. I think it was there that I really got my first experience uh, with sickle cell. I had never seen a a patient with that. I'm not sure that I ever knew about it as an entity until I was in medical school. But Duke at the time was one of the early NHLBI comprehensive sickle cell centers. And so they had a great clinical and research track. And so I was very fortunate to, to plug into that and meet my mentors, my eventual mentors. And so I think I was just at there at the right time to to experience it and to get interested in sickle cell. So were you in the MSTP, MD-PhD program at Duke at that time? Or was it an MD and a PhD separate? A little bit different than the typical. There was an MSTP where you could come in and get your MD and your PhD together, but you had to know when you applied to medical school what you wanted to do, and I wasn't sure. So I applied to Duke as a regular medical student, did four years, but 
Duke had a special program for medical students, and that was to try to get some interested in research. So for your entire third year of medical school, you were able to do research. And I was fortunate enough to work with an immunologist and a hematologist who eventually became my scientific mentor, Dr. Wendell Ross, while I was a medical student. So that was a great opportunity for me. So then when I did pediatrics residency and then came back to Duke and did my Hemonc fellowship, at that time, NIH was promoting physicians in research and had a special NIH program called the Physician Scientist Award, where they would allow MDs to get protected time. And so essentially, I did my PhD during my fellowship. I did a year of clinical, then I did a year of basic science classes in immunology, and then my fellowship project counted for both fellowship and my PhD. So it took a little longer, but it was a, a combined. So I don't know. I guess that's a backdoor MD-PhD or <laughs> certainly atypical, but worked for me. That sounds like a, a good way to do it, actually. I know just a couple other people who were at Duke at that time, like David Ginsburg, I think, was uh, at Duke at around the same time. And Paul Farmer, who just passed away, was there around the same time, too, I think. So really sparked a lot of great careers, it sounds like, out of that science program. So that got the spark in hematology When did you know sickle cell? Was it fellowship? As a medical student, I did rotations like all students do. And one of the ones that I liked a lot was pediatrics. And so then when I did electives, I got interested in, I did peds nephrology, peds ID, but also peds hemonc. And it was there that I really fell in love with both hematology and oncology, but especially hematology. As much as you can as a student, you just get exposed to a few things. But I remember seeing children with sickle cell. You got to remember, I was trained in the 1980s, and I think that's a really important point because what we knew and what we didn't know about sickle cell. But at the time, I remember seeing children getting care, but really not getting great care. Let me explain what I mean by that. The cooperative study of sickle cell disease, which hopefully is known to some in the audience, was an amazing 20-year project, a prospective trial to basically determine the natural history of sickle cell disease in kids and adults. And when I was training in the 80s, it was right in the middle of that. And so we were seeing children on a regular basis. We were doing all kinds of assessments. We were looking for gallstones and avascular necrosis and strokes. And we were doing lots of assessments. There was one therapeutic trial, PROPS, the penicillin trial, that we had some children on as well. But we were essentially documenting the natural history of sickle cell during the time that I was training. And so we were seeing a lot of children. Duke had a big program, probably 400 children. And it was done in an interesting way because we were quite involved at the community level. There were programs, outreach satellite clinics in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Fayetteville, and Lumberton. So we would take monthly trips from Durham down and across to those sites. But we would see the the kids regularly. And I remember when they would come in with pain crises and acute chest, there wasn't a whole lot that we could do for them. So In retrospect, I call it the dark days of sickle cell because we were watching the natural history unfold, we were documenting it, but we had so little that we were doing. We could give transfusions and we could give morphine and that was about it. And so it was a neglected patient population at the time. And I don't remember a, a particular aha moment 
to finally answer your question. But I do remember seeing that this was a, a neglected patient population that really could benefit from some care and research. And as I said, I had mentors that really helped me realize that this would be a great career. And so then right out of fellowship, you were basically running the Sickle Cell Center in Duke. Well, not exactly. I had two mentors. Can I mention them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So my my pediatrics mentor was Tom Kinney, who was an amazing guy, uh, came from a very erudite, privileged family, and yet was totally focused on kids with sickle cell disease. And he did most of his training at Duke, but had gone up to CHOP and was part of that great program up there, learning sickle cell, came back to Duke and was my primary clinical mentor and taught me everything about the care and the management and the psychosocial. He was just a a fantastic mentor for me with kids and really helped me go into pediatrics more than adult medicine. I did have an adult a hematology mentor, Wendell Ross, whom I mentioned. He was more of a lab-based person for me, but he also took care of patients. So I had just these two amazing individuals who helped train and mentor me in in clinical care and research right from the beginning. And they led the, the Duke Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center on the adult and pediatric side. Finished my fellowship, I joined Tom in the pediatric clinic, but he ran it for several years with me as his deputy or sidekick before he moved on to a little bit more of an administrative role running the residency program. So I had plenty of mentorship, and I think that's very important. If I had been thrown into that role right at the beginning, it would have been too much. But I had lots of of time with great mentors. And it it looked like there, too, you started to become a mentor. I I know I've talked to, to some, like, Andre James or Courtney Thornburg, who I think were mentees of yours at Duke, and they all speak so highly of you and have amazing careers as well. So It was an easy approach to take when you're in an academic program like that. Clinical care is always number one and always has been and will be number one, but research is a very close second. And with Wendell and Tom leading it, All the kids and adults were getting care, but our goal was to have every one of them on research studies. And so it became a a great opportunity for residents and fellows and other people to come in and also become mentored. And I had such good training on my own that it was easy to pass it on. But yeah, there were plenty of people who came through the program there for training, whether it was sickle cell or not. On the sickle cell side, Steve Nelson, Matt Heaney, Courtney Fitzhugh at NIH. But then there were people that didn't end up in just sickle cell, like you mentioned, Courtney Thornburg, Denise Adams, Andy James, but have all had really distinguished careers. So that's really been one of the best parts of academic medicine is get to to work with so many fantastic individuals. It's amazing. That's an amazing group. Each one of them has made big contributions. So it, it, I was looking back through those 300 articles on PubMed, and I saw a lot of early T.R. Kinney ones. But it, it looked like even back in the early mid-90s, you started to focus in on hydroxyurea and have done so much work with that since then. I know when I hear... Russell Ware, I associate you with hydroxyurea, which I think that's well, I, a good, I think that's, that's a good thing. 
a good tag or not. I hope so. I've been accused somewhere between an advocate and a zealot of hydroxyurea, <laughs> and I take that. I, I embrace that without any hesitation. So going back to this idea of what were we doing in the 1980s, we were giving morphine and transfusions, and we gave a lot of advice and anticipatory advice to families. But the sickle cell disease was so unpredictable. We didn't know when a child was going to come in with an acute stroke or a life-threatening acute chest syndrome or pneumococcal sepsis. And you almost had to live in that time to, to recognize how the natural history was unfolding for us and recognizing how bad the natural history of sickle cell is. And we miss that sometimes today. We don't quite think of sickle cell, at least in the U.S., as a life-threatening disease, but we should. Untreated sickle cell is a horrible disease. And if you've seen children die of pneumococcal sepsis, if you've seen them die of acute chest syndrome, if you've seen 40 or 50 children have acute strokes that were all in our transfusion clinic, you realize that you have to do something to, to intervene. And fortunately for me or for us, it was right in the early 1990s that hydroxyurea first came out as a potential treatment. And there's a couple of interesting parts to this story. The first was that it was, of course, started with the Boston group when they did the proof of principle. But to me, the most important paper was Sam Shirash when he published in 1992 a phase 1-2 trial of multicenter adults with sickle cell. That paper is probably the best paper I've ever read. I read it every year or two because there's so much information in it about the indications, the toxicities, the dose response, there's pharmacology, there's safety, there's, uh, it's just a great paper. And it's too bad that the world lost Sam Shirash in 2019 because he contributed so much to the care and research for sickle cell. But anyway, it was right at that time, published in blood, 1992, that we were having a problem with some of our children not being able to give them blood. So again, the dark days, we weren't cross-matching with extended phenotypes. And so we were having all these kids on transfusions and they were developing alloantibodies and some of them were developing autoantibodies. And I remember very vividly um, one clinic, we had a sickle cell clinic every Wednesday and on one clinic, two of the patients who were on chronic transfusions for stroke had so many alloantibodies that the blood bank said, we have no compatible blood for you. You're kind of on your own. And Around that time, we were desperate for something to do, and we had seen this paper, and so we ordered hydroxyurea, and we started them on it. And we, these were children who, of course, were high risk for a recurrent stroke because they had been on blood for years, and we held our breath. And in three months, four months, six months, both of them were doing okay. Their hemoglobin was rising on their own. They were making fetal hemoglobin as the hemoglobin A weaned off out of their system. And it was pretty amazing. I have to tell you, my first encounters with hydroxyurea were those two um, kids, and it was vivid. It was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And so we started to use it in more children. And then we said, gosh, this is like doing so much more than we thought it would do. And I think if there were a theme that I would put around or a phrase that I would put around hydroxyurea, it, was, it is that it underpromises and overdelivers. It doesn't say that it's going to cure sickle cell. It doesn't say it can cure everything, but it does so much more than you think it can if you dose it correctly. And so what I've done over the last 25 years is try to figure out what are the indications, what's the right age, 
What are the right doses? What do you have to worry about? But trying to do it in a research-oriented way so that we can extend it to as many children as possible. So it was pretty good there in the 1990s. We started to use it in those stroke patients first and published a couple of papers on that. And then the NIH funded a, a phase one, two trial for children. So in follow-up to the SIRASH published in blood, uh, this is Kinney, first author. I'm fortunate enough to be the senior author published in 1999, phase one, two of hydroxyurea in children. And that really set the path because then we knew a lot about the dosing strategies. We knew a lot about toxicities and how to monitor. And then slowly in the 2000s began to expand it a little bit more in special populations, um, particularly stroke and stroke prevention. So I'm still really impressed by hydroxyurea. You start somebody on it and you see the MCV go up. You see the fetal hemoglobin go up. The hemoglobin go up. The patient's doing better. So I We take it for granted now, I think, but it really is a a very... Yeah, I call it a miracle drug, and I won't call it a curative drug, but it is amazing. It does so many things that are good for sickle cell. And when we think about targeted therapies that can interfere with one part of the pathophysiology, whether it's adhesion, whether it's polymerization of hemoglobin S, whether it's shifting the oxygen group, all those things, the inflammatory, hydroxyurea does that and more. So it really, I think if there's a... A story to tell about hydroxyurea, use it early, use it often, use it at full dose, and make it the standard of care for sickle cell anemia. That's what I hope we'll get to if we're not there already. I hope so too. It's always been a challenge to get adoption, and that's been a, a, a frustration. I think some of it was our doing. We talked about hydroxyurea differently than we talked about every other medicine. And I, I think that was put a little resistance sometimes to, to using it. And I, I think that was all well-intentioned, but it's always been a challenge. You mentioned hydroxyurea having multiple effects. I think we always talk about the fetal hemoglobin effect, but what are these other effects? I want to go back. I'll answer your question, but I want to go back to this idea of what did we do wrong and how to make hydroxyurea therapy a little more palatable. But yes, fetal hemoglobin induction is the sine qua non of, of hydroxyurea. It must happen and it does happen, and that's what really inhibits the initial sickling event. Nature has taught us through high fetal hemoglobin and hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin that it's the most potent laboratory parameter that ameliorates the severity of sickle cell anemia. So it's the target. And hydroxyurea does it inevitably. It doesn't do it to the same level, and everybody has different pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and pharmacogenomics, but it does go up, and more is better. So it does work, and that's its main thing. But it also lowers the white count. It also makes your red blood cells larger. It lowers their viscosity of your blood. It lowers their, it increases their deformability. It has great endothelial effects. So it has at least six or eight different effects. You almost could think of them as collateral benefits and beyond the uh, fetal hemoglobin induction. And so you started with these couple of patients who were in a desperate situation, couldn't get transfused, and then said, maybe we could do this in more kids, did this early phase study, and then off to St. Jude's and and baby hug? Was that Uh, the next step? Yeah, so where we went next after we did those first couple was to say we had other stroke patients who weren't doing well, not because of their blood. They did have a couple of alloantibodies occasionally, but it was iron overload. What were we going to do about that? Because at the time, all we had was defroxamine, which was really not palatable as a 
daily, nightly subcutaneous infusion. And we started to have some kids die of iron overload in their teens. So what we opted to do was to try it on more of these stroke patients. And then thinking that it would be a good idea to stimulate erythropoiesis, we would phlebotomize them every month. So here we were previously giving them blood every month and pouring it in. And then now we're putting them on hydroxyurea and taking it out five or 10 mLs per kilo every month. And amazingly, but maybe mathematically sensibly, you can get the iron right back out if you do phlebotomy, as it's been known in hemochromatosis. So we turned our transfusion clinic for stroke into a phlebotomy clinic for stroke over several years. And we published how it works and its rates. It's not perfect, but either is blood transfusion. We would have recurrent strokes on blood, and there are some on hydroxyurea. But it did lead the way to saying that maybe there's an alternative to blood transfusions. And so that was when I decided uh, to move to St. Jude to allow a little larger research platform to give me an opportunity to move from a state and regional program to a national platform. And that was uh, a good time to leave in 2004 to, to go to St. Jude. Incidentally, I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but that was the year that Coach Mike Krzyzewski was thinking of going to the NBA, and I like to think that Duke only had enough money to keep one of us, but <laughs> they probably made the right decision and kept him, and then I, and I went. But St. Jude was good because it's got research in its name, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and we were able to focus on the pharmacokinetics of hydroxyurea in a way that I had never done before, and we learned a lot about when you could how you could dose it, how did the concentration matter, did the exposure, and we learned that area under the curve was really important for the drug, and that's helped us in future dosing. So, yeah, that was a, a good shift for me. And th- th- there's a lot of amazing work there, and I noticed a, a lot of this work. You were looking at, like, genetic modifiers of fetal hemoglobin response and really genetic modifiers of sickle cell in general, looking at the effect of hydroxyurea on DNA and mutations. and That gets to the point about why people aren't using it more freely, and I put, or more liberally, I put the burden and the blame on the providers on that one. I think it's all in how we present it to our patients. And if we start with the attitude that this might work or it might not, it might be safe, but it might not, it might be too toxic, we have to stop it every time your A and C goes to 2,000, nobody's going to want to take a medicine where it's not going to help them and it's so dangerous that they can't use it. And so we've just gone about hydroxyurea in the wrong way. And at places like Duke and then at St. Jude and now here at Cincinnati where we've come together and said, look, this is going to be our standard of care. We're going to start to use it. We're going to offer it to all the patients, which is what the NHLBI recommends in the guidelines. And we're going to make it easy for them to take it. We're going to titrate it to the right dose. I call it the optimal dose, not the maximum tolerated, because that even sounds like you're going to push them too tough. So we're going to use the right dose. And we train our physicians and our mid-level providers, our NPs, PAs, or everybody's on board, social work, nurses, and it's contagious. It's enthusiastic how the families want to be on a disease-modifying therapy that works, that's safe, and then we've just enjoyed really good success. So I think the, the way to approach hydroxyurea is to make a commitment as a provider group and 
commit to doing it. I don't think we've done a good job nationally on that. And I don't think we've reached advocacy groups and national organizations. And it hangs out there as this too dangerous to use, only use it if you want to, take one capsule a day. If it doesn't work, then you can say, see, it doesn't work for me because it's the wrong dose. So I know I'm up on my soapbox now, Mike, but I think... <laughs> no, I, I think it's good because I think this has been a problem. I think it's getting better in, in part because of advocacy. And I think you've done a lot of work to show that some of the things we were worried about, we shouldn't have been worried about. So yeah. whether it was so that, that study was, where you looked was, at DNA mutations. Yeah, so we decided we would look at rates of mutation. We'd look at toxicities that accumulate over time. And all of those have been reassuring. And, you know, when I look back and see those first patients that I treated who were in that desperate state, that was 30 years ago this year. And it, the paper came out in 1992, and it was right then. And if there were a danger signal for cancer, if there was a high rate of untoward terrible side effects, we would know it by now. There's been tens of thousands of patients treated for years and years. Tens and 100,000 patient years. There would be a, a clear signal. And I, I think we are seeing a clear signal, and that signal is that you live longer. You have less health problems, you do better. Yeah. Well, that's been shown many times, that even the sicker patients who get treated at programs live longer than the ones who don't. And that gets around to this point of who needs the drug. And I think that when having lived through watching the natural history unfold and documenting it, I really bristle when I see so-and-so is doing well with their sickle cell. I think that's a euphemism for they're not in the emergency room right now, but they're not doing well. They're anemic, they're hemolyzing, they're, they've got proteinuria you don't know about, they've infarcted their spleen, they've got early organ damage, they're not doing well. It's just, uh, and so to, I, to think that you don't need to treat somebody, we would never consider that with severe life-threatening asthma, with diabetes, with any other life-threatening disease. And we really should hold ourselves accountable and not do that for sickle cell anemia either. For sure. And I think you said before, we, we take it for granted or we don't think about the severity of sickle cell now. Because patients are doing a little better, but this year even we're losing friends and it's not okay. And, and we have things that could help. And so we really Right. We have not moved the needle on adult mortality, early mortality in decades. But... We now have newer generations of, I hope, healthier kids that were graduating to adult programs. And we're really proud of the fact that we've started cohorts where we have over 90% of the babies year after year starting hydroxyurea by age one or two, so that when they reach their teenage years, they have not been hospitalized a lot. They have not been damaged. They're not cured. And we can talk about what cure means in sickle cell, but I think hydroxyurea is safe and effective. And if we've done anything to help show that and help convince our colleagues here in the nation and now worldwide, I hope it's that. Might be nice to have another comprehensive sickle cell study to show those changes. So that early work on transfusion patients and seeing if you could take people off of transfusions and put them on hydroxyurea and phlebotomize them and get the iron off, turned into a lot of studies that all end in itch, I think. So SWITCH was the one that we were thinking, because I used to talk about this, we're switching them over from blood transfusions to um, hydroxyurea, and we're taking them off 
putting blood in and switching them over to taking it out. And so SWITCH seemed like a natural acronym. And so we decided to come up with words that fit SWITCH. And so I think that's the ideal acronym is one that's easy to say, easy to remember. Uh, It's not forced and it actually means something. I I think you're a master of this. I've seen SWITCH, (laughs) Twitch, helps, no harm, treat, extend, sacred. I don't know. We've stopped trying to make them make any sense. We just pick some nice word, but but these all mean something. It's that's a talent in and of itself to come up with these acronyms. I guess it's a talent. It's a it's become something that we do spend some time and enjoy doing, trying to make it meaningful. Yeah. But switch and twitch, th- these were studies where you really employed that. And right. I think in a big way, in multi-center, international, NIH-funded, really big studies that thoroughly answered the questions. Yeah, and I think it's important, Mike, to know that what you do at one institution isn't really transferable until you do it at a larger scale. That was the beauty of, of moving to a place where we could then apply for better NIH funding and do it. Because switch, the S of switch is for stroke. So these were kids that have already had a stroke. And you're trying to figure out, can I convert them over to hydroxyurea? Would it be safe? And it's interesting. I remember having a kind of a consensus conference with 30 different pediatric investigators. And I said, are you even interested in taking your your patient population with stroke off of blood transfusions? And they all were. But, and there was important but, it had to be safe and it had to have an opportunity to improve their quality of life. And interestingly, quality of life wasn't linked directly to the stroke rate because everybody knew that there were recurrent strokes on blood. Everybody knew that it was imperfect. Where it really interfered with quality of life was having to come in every month for blood and having to do daily chelation. That was the misery. So what SWITCH did then was say, can we use hydroxyurea and phlebotomy? And in order to make it sensible, we had to have the dreaded composite endpoint. So we had to use the stroke rate as part of the story, but it wasn't all the story. There also had to be better iron removal. We had to do better on iron or else it wouldn't make sense to put the children at any risk for a a recurrent stroke by taking them off blood. So it has, the design was set up to have that composite endpoint. Once you start to do a trial, everybody pays more attention to it. And so when we put the kids on blood trans, uh, we randomized, half of them stayed on blood transfusions and half flipped over to hydroxyurea. Our recurrent stroke rate on blood was 0%. We're the only study or program that's ever had zero recurrent stroke, even though these patient populations are routinely 10, 15, 20%. On the study, it was zero. On the hydroxyurea side, it was 10%, which was Perfectly acceptable in terms of events per patient year, but looked pretty bad because you're not doing as well on the on the blood. And how did we do on the iron tran- iron chelation? Well, phlebotomy was incredibly effective, but right at the time switch opened, oral iron chelators came out. So instead of having to try to beat desferoxin, which I'm sure we would have, patients were put on oral iron chelators, and initially they were really excited about being on that. Uh, the ferroserox because it was so much better than the injectable. Now, not so much. Now, don't have a good comparison to it. But anyway, that was our perfect storm was with it. We were comparing to uh, a great regimen of transfusion and oral iron chelators versus hydroxyurea and phlebotomy. 
And so I don't think of Switch as failing. I think we learned a lot about it, but it was not successful in terms of uh, having the alternative treatment be better, primarily because the iron was better on both arms, if that makes sense. We, we were able yeah. to not accumulate iron on both arms. So Twitch then was a follow-on, and the T was for TCD. So now the idea was, let's try to take advantage of the fact that programs were using TCD screening and identifying all these kids, and was there any way that we could move some of them off blood transfusions? And so I think Twitch, in retrospect, was a better design because they were a little less high risk. The switch patients, when you look at their brain MRIs and MRAs, were incredibly damaged. Many of them had multiple strokes coming into the study. But Twitch was more successful in terms of reaching its primary endpoint of having equivalent benefits. Those were the two big trials in the stroke prevention population. And I think iron is a huge problem. Um, for patients on transfusions, and it's a silent problem until it's not. And that makes it so hard to deal with. So having an option like this where you can really, we, we twitched about 25 patients in Detroit, and we got the iron down to normal. It wasn't like with chelation, you're hoping to get it into a moderate range that you can manage. But these were you know, all the way back down to normal, people on hydroxyurea and doing well. Um, and it's it's such a challenge, yeah. iron. I think the other thing that these studies did was really by doing them across the country, you build an infrastructure, you educate all of the sites, they learn how to read the MRIs, how to manage the transfusions, how to manage all in a standardized way where we're talking the same language and know the same outcomes. And so I, I think, you know, whether they achieve their endpoints or not, these studies have huge impacts beyond the science. I hope so, and appreciate you saying that. Uh, big multicenter trials are a challenge, but they're so rewarding because you work with some of the brightest, most enthusiastic colleagues. It's a consensus building. You're, it's really gratifying. And, and it, you can see a generation of sickle cell doctors who are a community. They're Colleagues and rivals a little bit sometimes, but but really friends and, and colleagues and have built a lot of expertise and made a lot of improvements in sickle cell care. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You've done a ton of work in Africa and in the Caribbean and, again, the mentorship and building programs in those places and a lot of it around hydroxyurea and stroke prevention. But we talk a lot about most of the people living with sickle cell are not in the U.S. How did you get involved in that? What do you have going on now? What are the accomplishments and what are the future challenges? I was at St. Jude to, from 2004 till 2011. And during that time, they had outreach in the Middle East. And about 2006, 2007, I had the opportunity to travel to Lebanon and Jordan and met Dr. Miguel Aboud, who was there. He had been in the U.S. at some time. And I remember going with him to his sickle cell clinic and seeing patients that didn't look like patients I had seen. And it was eye-opening, frankly, to say, gosh, worldwide problem with sickle cell, or sickle cell is a worldwide problem. It wasn't really appreciated at that time. People knew and they didn't know. It wasn't written about. Right around the same time, there were a couple of opportunities to go to the Caribbean. There was a, a conference in Grenada and met Marvin Reed from Jamaica and realized that they had a huge issue with, uh, with sickle cell in the Caribbean. And so I think those were like my two 
opportunities where I realized how much sickle cell there was outside of the U.S. So here where I had spent my whole career trying to improve the care, first in North Carolina and then in, in Memphis and maybe helping for stroke prevention. But that's less than 1% of the patients in the world. And when you realize that what you're doing that could be helping so many more, it forced me to realize that I needed to look at sickle cell from a global perspective. And so that was really the beauty of moving here to Cincinnati Children's was at the time they were looking for a way to not only have a, a division director of hematology, but to do something at the global health level. And so that just was a perfect fit for me. And so what we've done, Mike, is to find programs and try to meet them wherever their needs were. So in the Caribbean, for example, they were pretty good at diagnosing it. They knew how to do it, but they didn't really know how to manage stroke. And so for both Jamaica through the SCATE and the EXTEND trial, as well as uh, Dominican Republic, the SACRED trial, it's been about stroke prevention, trying to keep TCD values low so that children don't convert from conditional to abnormal and need blood transfusions. And those have been really successful, but they were really at the request of what the program directors there needed. And that's part of what WHO's directives are. You can't go in and just decide, here's what I want to do. You have to work with programs. You have to help build capacity. You have to identify partners. And I think we've been pretty careful about that and hopefully have done well. So the big step was Africa. How do you get started in sub-Saharan Africa? And I give credit to people like Isaac Odame and Kwahua Henny Frempong, who really been generous with helping me make connections there and finding partners like Leon Shalolo and Democratic Republic of Congo and opportunities in Angola and Uganda and Kenya. And so we've just been very fortunate to find partners who wanted to do different kinds of studies. And again, to try to meet the needs of what they wanted. Sometimes it was surveillance, like the Ministry of Health in Uganda said, we think we have a big problem with sickle cell, but we don't know how big it is. So we helped design a national surveillance study. And it was very successful, taught them the technology of massive isoelectric focusing, did 100,000 samples in a year, did a geographic distribution, and now they're better informed and they know where to marshal their limited resources. That's the U.S. US Uganda sickle surveillance study. And did they have a huge population? Oh, yeah. So it was twice as high as they had projected. So that gives you an idea of, of the volume. And so then we did it in northern Tanzania, which said that they had a problem, and there was about three times more than they, than they thought. So I think those studies of surveillance of diagnosis have been impactful. But where I'm most proud, I think, is this idea of how do you treat them after you diagnose them? I learned that back in my days at Duke when we started doing newborn screening. It's good to diagnose early, but it's not enough because you're telling families you've got this horrible disease. I know what the natural history is going to be like, bad, unpredictable, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so now having hydroxyurea that you can link screening to treatment it's really changing the game. And so what we realized early on when I got here at Cincinnati was that our partners in Africa wanted to have in-country experience with hydroxyurea. They wanted to learn how to use it, how to dose it, prove safety. 
And so that's been really the, the joy of working on the no harm and the REACH trials was to show that it was safe and effective, just like it is in the U.S. It is no better, no worse, really. It works just as well if you push it to the right dose. And, and so I, I think that's a good storyline that we've been doing the last eight or 10 years here. And a couple of years ago, it was absolutely amazing. Dr. Shalolo presenting a plenary session at ASH. And for the warriors out there, at the ASH meeting each year, there's six papers that are decided that they're the best ones. And there's 20,000 people in the audience. That's like the, that's the peak, right? That's right. as good as it gets. And published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so It's even better than that. So Leon Shalolo, what a wonderful, generous man and helped us not only get started in Democratic Republic of Congo, but really helped pull together the consortium of REACH sites. So he's getting ready to, to give this talk. He's eager to do it. And he tells me as he's getting ready, I'm just not sure I'm ready to give because I'm worried about my English. And I said, Leon, your English is really good, but I know it's not your first language. Is it your second or third? He goes, it's my seventh language and it's just not my best. And I thought, I think you can get through it okay. And he gave this beautiful talk. And it's the first and only time I've ever seen or witnessed really a standing ovation at an ASH plenary session. It was that impactful. And I would have never guessed that it was his seventh language. So there's a ton of stuff that I would love to dig into with you. But I, I, I think to be cognizant of time, maybe we could have you back another time to talk about stuff you've done with reproductive health and sickle cell, renal disease and sickle cell. But I do have a question about spider bites. I saw you had a paper about <laughs> spider bites. And I have always thought that spiders get a bad rap. Everybody comes in and they have some swelling and they're like, I think I got bit by a spider. And I say, did you see a spider? No, I just woke up and I had this swelling and it's a spider bite. What's this? How did you get into spider bites? And and do you think they're really spider bites or do you think people just get swelling and blame it all on spiders? Oh, I'm afraid I'm not going to your Spider-Man storyline here. Yes, they are spiders. So in the Memphis area, there are a lot of brown recluse spiders and they're in shoes, they're, they get on you, they live in the garage, I don't know. It, they're actually all around the U.S., but I didn't see it until I moved to, to western Tennessee. And we had a case or two every year of really pretty impressive hemolytic anemia due to spider bites called loxosalism. And so based on loxosceles, brown recluse spider. And sometimes the family would bring it in. Sometimes we would actually see the bites on the skin. So yeah, it's real. And it causes a pretty wicked bite with eschar and pain and hemolytic anemia. So we did a case series on loxosceles, loxosceleism. <laughs> so keep it on your differential for unexplained hemolytic anemia. All right. I want to just rapid fire a few crazy questions for the audience. Cats or dogs? Cats. Last meal. Mexican food. If you couldn't be a doctor or a scientist, what would you have been? Professional chess player. Ooh. Not a very good one, probably, but... What's your ELO score? <laughs> Just under 2,000. Oh, that's pretty darn good. Okay. Favorite vacation spot? Greek islands. Favorite book? Wrinkle in Time. Science fiction from my youth. Ooh. What's for dinner tonight? <laughs> Grilled fish. All right. So, so much, Dr. Ware. It's a 
advice. But thank you so much for all you do. And, and thanks so much for being on Cheat Codes. I know the Warriors are going to love this episode and, and really would love to have you back sometime. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it and happy to come back anytime. Great, great. Thanks. Man, Cheat Codes listeners, that was a really, really special interview. I am immensely proud that Cheat Codes is able to pull in these legends of sickle cell to talk a little bit about how they've contributed to sickle cell disease and sort of what their approach has been through their career um, and, and how they're passing the torch on. Dr. C did a wonderful job with that interview and we appreciate the time that Dr. Ware spent with us. Listen, if you found this podcast episode interesting, fun, please share it with somebody who you think could benefit. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and you can follow Dr. C at Imagineer. And with that being said, man, keep living well with sickle cell disease. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.